This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Remember when flying used to be an enjoyable experience? (laughs) How long has it been since? (laughs) I, I, I can't even remember. But now it is so stressful, especially this summer as airlines are canceling more and more flights. United cutting back. American stopping service altogether at four different cities. We'll go in-depth into, uh, to say the least, problematic air travel. The Supreme Court hands down its big ruling on guns. It is now a lot easier to carry one in public. We'll look into how that will impact laws here in California. And now that this case is over, all eyes focus on the abortion ruling which is coming very soon. Ukraine being pushed to the front of the line for European Union membership. Russia might have other plans. Uh, The water levels are now so low at Lake Mead that they're close to hitting Deadpool. That means no water spills to the other side of Hoover Dam. We go in depth on how that could impact our supply here. And a new study sheds light on how it's apparently better to sleep in total dark. Total dark. Go and get those, like, blackout curtains. Just absolute darkness. Yeah, not even a little alarm clock shining at you. Okay. We start with airlines, all the cancellations. With us is Douglas Kidd, executive director of the National Association of Airline Passengers. Douglas, thanks for being with us. You know it's bad when people are willing to drive, like to England, (laughs) rather than fly. How do we solve this? Well, I think there's three things that uh, we need to do. Um, uh, First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, Well, number number one, if the airlines... um, have larger planes. They they really need to uh, schedule larger planes on their existing runs instead of the smaller planes that they might have. In other words, run a 757 or a 767 instead of that 737. Uh, they need to hire back staff that they got rid of during the pandemic, especially those people that they uh, got rid of because they refused to be vaccinated. Uh, I think that uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, who's been vaccinated to the to the hilt, he's tested positive for um, for COVID. So. Really, what, um, what benefit does it really serve to keep good, able uh, pilots and mechanics and gate personnel uh, from working when they're needed? And finally, the airlines need to uh, be honest with the passenger and say, look, uh, we're operating at or above capacity. And uh, if anything goes wrong, if we have one flight delayed or canceled, it's going to spread through the entire system because there's no ability for the system to absorb uh, the extra passengers from a flight that is canceled. Uh, so the airlines need to be honest with the people. And finally, uh, because the airlines are, are facing this kind of a problem, uh, the airlines, uh, the Congress, and, and so forth, need to look at what can be done to increase capacity in the airline system today. Um, there's plenty of people out there who want to work. There's manufacturers who want to sell planes. And there's people who want to travel. It should not be a difficult problem to solve. To pick up on number three of the four you had there, when the airlines were were over the last couple of months, did they just play this way too close to that line? I mean, we look at American pulling out of some cities because they get, can't get the pilots to to do this. They knew all along, or at least they've known for a while, that any one of those problems was going to domino effect, and that's what we've been seeing. Exactly so, and uh, uh, this is not a mystery to the airlines. They they watch the passenger load very closely every day. Uh, and they, they know that there's a lot of pent-up demand. There are people who are tired of being uh, kept at home. They want to go places. They want to do things. And they expect the airlines to be there to serve them. Uh, and the airlines, I'm afraid, have, uh, have in fact, done exactly what you said, played it a little bit too close to the vest. Uh, 
uh, tried to emphasize packing a plane rather than serving the public. Uh, and the result is what we see today. You know, investigators always say follow the money. So where did all that taxpayer money that the airlines got actually go? They were supposed to use a large amount of it to keep the staff uh, employed, but that didn't really happen. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's very true. Um, of course, obviously, the airlines did spend it on maintaining operations, but uh, the $50 billion was only to carry the airline's or during the period they thought they would need it, that is to say about six months. And the, uh, the whole situation carried on not for six months, but as we've seen for a couple of years. Um, I think the um, you know, Congress would do well to uh, get together with the airlines and with passengers uh, to you know, say, okay, what do we need to get the system back on an even keel? Right now? Because right now it's not. Right now it's overloaded. It's not able to handle the demand. And, uh, you know, the result is uh, chaos in the airways. Is it just us or is it everybody else, too? Like, I look at the, the images from Heathrow and they had bags stacked up like 10 deep in one of the halls. And, and British Airways, which, you know, card-carrying member over here, has now messed up two trips for me by canceling, you know, two different flights. And now I'm, I don't know where I can go slash I'm stranded somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they don't have to drag the ocean liners back out of service. To, to <laughs> the Queen Mary, too, will take us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I, I can't speak for the uh, uh, for the foreign carriers. I can only talk about the uh, uh, carriers here in the United States. And uh, I think there has been uh, a little bit too much focus on making sure that every seat has been filled rather than thinking about serving every passenger who wants to fly. Well, is, isn't that sort of the bottom line globally is that the emphasis does not seem to be anymore, with maybe a few exceptions, on serving the passengers' needs. It's all about serving the airline's needs, about hub airports, smaller planes, because it's more economical for them. Isn't that the transition that's at the bottom of all this? Uh, well, there's a certain degree of truth about that. And for many years, the uh, uh, airlines went in the opposite direction, and they had planes that were half full. Uh, and the airlines, and there's a lot of airlines that are not flying today as a result. Uh, there has to be a, uh, you know, a, a good balance between the two issues of uh, serving the stockholders and serving the public. And that's where uh, regulation comes in. And that's where the FAA needs to, you know, to step up its governance over the airlines to say, OK, we need to make sure that, number one, the airlines can make a profit if they're flying at 80 percent load. And number two, you know, there has to be flights available for people to take, because if you can go if you can buy a ticket, and get a confirmed reservation, you get to the airport, your confirmed ticket means nothing if the flight's been canceled or delayed, uh, and you're rescheduled on a flight that's one, two, or three days uh, later. Douglas Kidd, Executive Director, National Association of Airline Passengers. Just just go to your boss and say, you know what, the one-week trip, it's now two because I have to take the boat. I'm sorry. Yeah, and and it may stretch to like a month. (laughs) You know, that's just the way it is. Still to come, the EU speeding up the process to make Ukraine a member could make Russia even more angry. And a new study will have you turning off all the lights, closing all the blinds when you sleep, because your health might depend on it. Can you do that in the day when you're awake? (laughs) Start lowering the curtains. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's for my health. (laughs) Yeah. Right now, though, looks like it might be easier to walk around in public with a gun. Thanks to today's Supreme Court ruling, it knocked down a New York law that required people to demonstrate a particular need for carrying a gun 
uh, to get a license to carry one in public. Now, this will also have an impact here in California. With us to discuss it is Adam Winkler, constitutional and Supreme Court scholar at UCLA's School of Law. He's also author of Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Adam, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, if I understand the Supreme Court ruling correctly, uh, with very few exceptions now, Americans have a constitutional right to carry a gun in public settings? That's right. The court struck down a New York law that said only those people with a special individualized need to have a gun can get a concealed carry permit. So if you were being stalked or had threats on your life, well, then you could get a permit. But if you just had a general fear of crime or being a victim, that was not good enough in and of itself. California has very similar laws, and California's permitting laws are likely to be struck down in the coming weeks on the basis of this ruling. Yeah, we can already expect people are going to start filing against those like straight away. Absolutely. I imagine the complaints have already been filed. If not, they're going to be filed uh, today. Uh, But what's important about this ruling is not just for what it says about carrying guns on the streets. The court also articulates a new test for courts to apply in Second Amendment cases going forward that's going to make it harder to defend a wide variety of gun safety regulations, especially the kinds of laws that we have here in California. I was going to ask, is there anything from a legislative point of view that a state such as California or New York, uh, if it wanted to, could do to kind of get around this ruling? Or is it is the game over? I think the game is not over. This case is not the end of the battles over concealed carry, but in many ways, just the beginning that I think we're going to see states like California and New York and they're not just going to throw up their hands in surrender and every, allow everyone to carry guns on the streets. They're going to enact new, innovative reforms that are going to make it difficult for people to carry guns on the streets. And that's going to spark a whole new round of litigation under the Second Amendment. But then the lower courts are going to be bound by this ruling from the high court, right? I mean, if they used to be more open to gun control, now they can't be as open to it because Justice Thomas is saying, take a look at the language on the page, and this is what we're going with. That's right. Uh, This decision will make it harder for gun safety advocates and lawmakers who favor gun safety reform uh, to get their laws passed, and once they're passed, to get them through the courts. Um, The courts have definitely erected new barriers to gun control, and we're likely to see some laws like California's ban on high-capacity magazine or California's ban on military-style rifles, maybe even California's 10-day waiting period for the purchase of certain kinds of firearms to be uh, called into constitutional question in the coming years. You sort of hinted at it in an earlier answer you gave, uh, and, and I'm wondering how you would respond to those who would say this is a really good decision because we have a constitutional right to protect ourselves and our family in public places. Uh, and they may point to the recent spate of mass shootings and say, you see, if more people had guns in public settings, perhaps we wouldn't have the high volume of mass shooting casualties that we seem to have in this country. What would you say to that argument? Well, I think the court has definitely sided with that argument today by saying you do have a right to carry a firearm uh, on the public streets and that while states can impose certain kinds of 
reasonable licensing requirements, that those licensing requirements have to be relatively easy to meet and easy to satisfy. Um, and I think that, so the court really has embraced that view of the Second Amendment. Uh, and if you're one of those people who really believes that the answer to gun violence is more guns, um, well, uh, this court decision certainly leading America in that direction. Adam Winkler, constitutional and Supreme Court scholar, UCLA, and Gunfight, the Battle over the Rights to Bear Arms in America is the book. Coming up, what if the Colorado River runs dry? Might happen on our side of the Hoover Dam if water levels at Lake Mead keep dropping. And today marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which most famously helped boost women's sports at the college level and beyond. We look into its impact today. Right now, the two big Supreme Court cases many people have focused on have been the gun case in New York we were just talking about, and of course the abortion case from Mississippi that could lead to overturning Roe v. Wade. There are some others of notes that haven't gotten as much attention. Amy Howe is a reporter and analyst for SCOTUS blog, also a former litigator who's argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. Amy, thanks for being back on the show. So how many more do they have to to hand down, and uh, obviously abortion will be one of them? Yes, they have nine more cases to hand down. They had been running behind in issuing their decisions. They came into June with 33 cases left to decide, but they've given us a flood of opinions over the last couple of weeks, and so they are now down to nine. In light of the decisions, including the one today on the New York State uh, uh, gun law, considering those rulings and, uh, of course, the uh, now infamously leaked uh, opinion or first draft of an opinion on abortion. Does anyone have any doubt what it's going to be? Uh, what the opinion in the Dobbs versus Jackson yeah. Women's Health? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, so I think the question is what exactly the court does after the oral argument in December it seemed like there were definitely a majority of the justices who wanted to uphold the Mississippi law. And the question is whether or not the court will overrule its landmark decisions in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, or whether they will stop short of formally overruling it, uh, and but still leave the Mississippi law in place. The draft opinion that we saw in early May suggested that there were five votes to overrule Roe and Casey. And so the question is just whether or not there will still be five votes uh, when they finally issue the opinion, whenever that is. What do you think of when that would be? Because the going uh, the going chatter is, okay, they're going to do it on the last day because that's uh, when justices like to drop big things and then uh, go on vacation so they don't have to deal with the fallout. And we don't know exactly how many days are left. I think it's unlikely that tomorrow, with when they're scheduled to issue opinions again, that they're going to give us nine opinions. So I think that we are looking at at least one, maybe two more opinion days next week uh, before the end of July. It, there's, It's not a sense necessarily, usually, that the justices are purposely saving these big cases for the last day. The problem is that these tend to be the cases on which the justices are are most divided, and it just takes a long time. But particularly given the, on the other hand, particularly given the protests that their ruling is likely to spark, no matter which way the court decides the case, you, know, you, you could envision a scenario in which the justices might want to wait until the last day so that they could go out of town.
I think it was the chief justice who had said in the past that there are no Republican or Democratic justices. Am I right about that in my recollection? That's right. That was in response to comments by then President Trump criticizing a ruling that went against the Trump administration on immigration. And the then President Trump called the judge who issued the ruling an Obama judge and the chief justice in a relatively rare statement. He doesn't often respond to these sort of political statements, said there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges, there are no Bush or Clinton judges. There are just federal judges. Okay, so that made a great uh, quote of the day and a great soundbite. But in light of the rulings thus far, uh, how is that statement from the chief justice shaping up? Well, today's decision in the gun case and some of the court's other recent high profile decisions involving for example, public funding for private schools have been decided by votes of six to three with the court's Republican appointees on one side of the uh, decision and then the court's liberal justices who are all Democratic appointees on the other side. The justices like to point out that not all of their cases divide by four or six three on ideological lines. It's certainly true that the court tends to divide, however, on the issues that people often care the most about. We're kind of in a new era. When I started covering the court, there were justices like Justice John Paul Stevens and Justice David Souter who'd become part of the court's liberal block, even though they were Republican appointees. But that is, is no longer the case. Amy Howe, reporter and analyst for SCOTUS Blog. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Ukraine is a big step closer to joining the European Union. EU leaders granting the country candidate status, but the move is likely to anger Russia. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the primary reason this is happening so quickly. How will this impact the conflict? With us is Miatek Botashinsky, uh, professor of U.S. foreign policy at uh, Pomona College. He's a former State Department diplomat in Albania and Kosovo. So uh, let me ask you... Uh, Russia clearly, this is not what they wanted when they invaded Ukraine, uh, the eastern portion of Ukraine and then later portions of, of Ukraine. Uh, they wanted to keep NATO at bay. They wanted to uh, keep these uh, countries like Ukraine and others more in their sphere of influence, right, as opposed to the European Union. So how did they react to this then? Yes. Hi, hi to both of you. And thanks for having me on again. Um, yeah, it's a paradox all of what you just identified, right? That they that they uh, carry out this this uh, this illegal invasion to to try to keep uh, Ukraine from joining the West, and then in the in, in the course of that, uh, Ukraine becomes even closer to the West. Um, so they're not happy about it, uh, but but there's little that they, they can do, and um, you know there's a chance that it might have might have happened anyway, but certainly their invasion uh, uh, sped it up. In the short term, what does it offer? Ukraine, because there's there's been commentary over the last few weeks that right now it seems a lot more like coming in words like we support and we're going to continue to. But where are the, the the uptake in deliveries? Where are more weapons? I mean, they need to survive. Yeah, I mean, so the. The this move uh, declaration that that Ukraine is now a um, uh, candidate state for full membership in the European Union is largely symbolic doesn't immediately provide for any of what 
you're talking about. Um, but symbolic moves are also important. And I think it, it does offer a great, great hope uh, uh, to Ukrainians, perhaps, perhaps uh, you know, additional motivation as they repel this invasion. Um, but in, in, in the short term, it, it, it doesn't offer additional uh, weapons, nor does it offer additional assistance outside of uh, the military sphere either. So a morale boost, at least? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, in, in the long term, um, it could lead to eventual membership, but there's a there's a long and difficult road ahead. And doesn't that long and difficult road ahead also, to some degree, annoy uh, other countries that have been on that waiting list a lot longer than Ukraine? Yeah. Uh, and that's that was part of the uh, the debate uh, within the various organs of the European Union. So uh, we're talking about uh, countries like like Serbia, like Albania, like North Macedonia, um, that have been uh, waiting now uh, for a long time. Serbia, for instance, has been a candidate state for for ten years, um, and. You know, some people would say that it's important to let those countries in first to show that the offer of admission is credible. Um, and also because those countries, frankly, have done more uh, to carry out the needed reforms. There's also some reasons not to let in those countries <laughs> that we could talk about. But certainly that's that's part of the uh, the debate. Who else is trying to get on the list? I mean, we, there's been a lot of talk about Moldova being in a precarious situation. Yeah, so Moldova also made it. Actually, uh, that was part of part of this uh, decision taken by the European Council. Moldova is now also a candidate state, and that has geopolitical um, uh, reasons behind it, uh, because Moldova is one of these countries that that has also uh, been threatened by Russia. And in fact, uh, part of its territory is one of these uh, uh, breakaway, uh, self-declared breakaway republics uh, that has Russian troops on its soil. I mean, is there a downside, by the way, for a country being part of the EU? I mean, certainly Britain didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a downside if you're a net contributor to the EU, and I think that was part of, uh, you know, if you're a rich country, in other words. Um, but uh, if you're a new member and you're a poor member, then the benefits are are tremendous from, you know, visa-free travel and ability to work in the European Union uh, to, of course, massive amounts of, um, of 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 assistance for your agricultural sector, for instance. All the Ukrainians have to do is is look across the border in Poland. And of course, many Ukrainians are in Poland right now to see the benefits that EU membership uh, can bring. Does it change the balance of, of what they will be doing in the future, uh, you know, assuming that Russia doesn't take over Ukraine? Because they're all going to be voting members. And uh, I imagine that kind of shifts, shifts the power when new countries join up. Yeah. And it's, it's a reason that, that some countries uh, and exist, existing members of the EU were wary about uh, putting Ukraine on the waiting list as well, because it does shift the balance. And, and the fact that countries like Poland and Hungary are members of the UN have become powerful countries within the EU, but also, frankly, you know, uh, are under their current governments, at least don't always share the values of the, of the EU that's created problems. Um, but not only, not only in, in that sphere, in all kinds of uh, areas, the poorer countries with different historical experience are gonna have different interests. And of course the EU depends on consensus um, to to implement policies, uh, so so having a country as large as Ukraine and as poor as Ukraine uh, will complicate things a lot. Uh, still, uh, you know, we saw a very very strong endorsement of of its candidacy, and and that shows that uh, that all these other 
that the existing EU members were willing to put aside those kinds of um, concerns for the moment. Miatek Bodoshinsky, professor of U.S. foreign, false, foreign policy <laughs> at Pomona College. <laughs> That's exact- I reversed them. <laughs> yeah, but I, I did the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, the uh, mega drought across the western U.S. is so bad that it may dry up the Colorado River on this side of Hoover Dam. Now, that's really bad because Southern California, Arizona, Nevada rely on that water. Lake Mead's water levels this week have dropped to historic lows, now less than 150 feet away from Deadpool. That's when the reservoir is so low, water can't flow downstream from the dam. Robert Glennon is an emeritus professor at the University of Arizona, specializes in water, law, and policy. Robert, thanks for being here. So how long until that could happen? Uh, that's tough to tell, guys. Um, uh, probably three or four years. It, it kind of depends on what is done in, in the meantime. Um, this has not come upon us uh, you know, suddenly. It's been moving in this direction for a while. But, but one of the problems is, <clears throat> if you think about western canyons, they are very wide at the rim, but very narrow at the bottom. And as the water in, in Lake uh, Mead um, behind Hoover Dam has gone down, it's getting into the narrow part of the canyon. So each foot of elevation has less water. And that's one of the reasons why it's happening. But, you know, it's a combination of you know, unsustainable water practices, lax rules, uh, the drought, the 23-year drought that we're in has been horrific. And we don't, we don't know whether this is the 23rd year of a 23-year drought or the 23rd year of a 100-year drought. And then, you, you know, you throw climate change into the mix and it's really a, a recipe for uh, very serious conditions. So if it were up to you, what would you have people do now? Okay. Um, well, there's the little things that we can do around our house, um, such as turning off a light, um, because uh, it's a little known fact, but an incandescent bulb that burns 12 hours a day may, over the course of uh, a year, use 6,300 gallons of water. So turn off a light, or better yet, install LED bulbs. Another thing around your house that you might not know about inside is is that if you use your food disposal two minutes a day to get rid of food scraps, you may, by the end of the month, use 150 gallons of water. So that's all inside, you know, easy things that we can take care of. But, you know, that's, you know, that's really rearranging the, the, the chairs and the Titanic. It's a much more serious problem than that. And when the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California recently announced that it wanted a 35% reduction in water, um, I imagine that got everyone in Southern California's attention. Uh, and really, that means changing how you, how you landscape. You know, that, that's, the bullseye is on lush landscaping, lawns, pools, golf courses. You know, that, that's for, the, for, the, for those of us who aren't farmers, those are the big water users. Do you have confidence that we are going to end up making those big changes this time? I mean, we don't have a lot of choice, frankly. Well, well, no, we don't. And and uh, just last week, the commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation warned Congress that she she uh, needed the seven basin states to reduce their water use on the Colorado River 
by two to four million acre feet in addition to the one million she's already withheld. Those are just staggering numbers. So it won't be easy. But but you know I'm I'm optimistic because we do have the tool set. Um, you know, conservation remains the low-hanging fruit. Um, reuse of water. Uh, uh, LA announced it was going to take its big Hyperion plant and reuse that 100% in coming years. Uh, price signals. I mean, my golly, we we pay less for water than we do for for cable television um, or cell phone service. And, and then finally, you know, finally we got to face the reality that we're going to reallocate water. So if you think of water as I do as a giant milkshake glass, and you think of each demand for water as a straw, what the states have permitted, California included, has been a limitless number of straws in the glass. Well, that has to change. That's that's what economists would call uh, the tragedy of the commons. So if we're going to allow someone to put a new straw in the glass, then we should ask we should ask her to buy someone else out, to take someone else's straw out. And that's got, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for that. And, uh, you're, pre- and, you're, from- and you're pretty confident that we're going to do the right things. Oh, you know, no, no. I, I guess I should borrow from Winston Churchill, you know, uh, something about some nasty crack he made about the United States never doing the right thing. But no, I, <laughs> but it, it's going to take the moral courage and the political action, um, you know, political will to uh, to to get the job done. But we have the toolkit. Robert Glennon is a professor emeritus at the University of Arizona, specializes in water law and policy. Too many straws in the milkshake glass. I like the way he said no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it seemed like it was going well there for a second. Yeah. And then actually, let me circle back to the no. No. Yeah. Get your act together. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. People have all kinds of sleep habits. Some need the blackout curtains. Others do the eye mask thing. Others, they leave a light on or, you know, the TV on the sleep timer or something, um, you know. Yeah, different strokes for different folks. Different different ways, you know. Yeah, but uh, some of them are wrong. Yes, clearly, and we're going to find <laughs> out why. Because that light might be doing more harm than good. A new study from Northwestern University finds even dim light can disrupt sleep, which could raise the risk of health problems, especially in older people, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and even obesity. Dr. Alon Avidan is a neurologist and director of the UCLA Sleep Disorders Center. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So how dim of a light are we talking about that could really cause problems and why? Well, it's a, it's an important question because um, even when folks say turn dim light, which is from an incandescent light source, um, we, we use lux as a unit of light intensity. And even three lux, which is equivalent to just a little bit of a dim light from an Edison light bulb is enough to disrupt the circadian signal because the eye functions in two ways. It it gives us vision and it also gives us circadian sleep-wake regulation. And if we're exposed to, to light, it tricks the brain into thinking that it's daytime. And that's what's that gonna do is turn on the sympathetic nervous system and prepare us for the day. Increase the blood pressure, heart rate, and uh, turn on the sympathetic nervous system. And the results from Northwestern are probably related to the fact that the um, part of the nervous system 
that keeps us alert and awake is inappropriately activated at night. So people are probably thinking, okay, I've got I've got some light that comes through the curtains or something, but my eyes are closed. I mean, it seems dark to me. Is is the light still like sneaking in there a little bit? Well, we're not too worried so much about light uh, uh, coming through the curtains, for example, in the early part of the morning. But when people have electronic devices, tablets, f- uh, smart devices that they bring into bed and reading, reading the news, reading all sorts of things, answering emails, and even before they go to bed, that when when individuals are pushing the time in which they're exposed to this uh, blue light or bright light, that that even television, that that blue light is likely to turn our brain on and get us into problems because the folks over at Northwestern found that 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 puts people at risk for um, diabetes. It it may lead the path to obesity. It may also increase uh, blood pressure and cardiovascular uh, issues related to increased pulse rate. And and what's that going to do is really turn our brain to thinking that it's it's daytime and can also lead to problems with insomnia. We're seeing a lot of patients, particularly during the days of the uh, uh, pandemic and now, that are uh, pushing through and doing work until the very, very late times during the night, and they don't really realize that that is doing actual damage uh, and puts them at risk for diabetes, weight gain, and also creating an issue with uh, um, their cardiovascular health. What about things like, because we're talking again at the outset, we were talking about dim lights. What about things like, like a night light? I mean, I, like, like, I used to have a, a, a night light in the room because I was afraid of monsters under the bed, and that was like a week ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> He's grown so much since yeah, then. Yeah, <laughs> past week I've learned to, to, to deal with it. But, but a lot of people do have like night lights because they, you know, they think they're going to get up at night and they want to make sure they don't stumble in the, in the dark. Is even the light from a night light sufficient? Uh, if it's within, you know, viewing distance, if your eyes were open to cause an issue? Uh, not so much. I would advise uh, that folks who need to get up at night and, and use the restroom and, and have to navigate through, keeping the nightlight close to the floor um, is probably a better idea as opposed to putting it uh, in the ceiling. So certainly you can use dim light for navigation as long as you keep it close to the floor. But uh, if you if people turn the lights on um, all over the house, right, as they need to do things in the middle of the night, that can be disruptive. Are people, you think, learning more or do they need to learn more that sleep is not just for not feeling tired the next day, but like to the whole point of this conversation, sleep, having good sleep will make you a whole lot healthier than, than maybe you would uh, think at the outset. I mean, it, it affects so many different things if you get your eight hours and you get them right. Absolutely. We learn so much more now than 10 years ago that uh, during sleep, we're actually getting rid of, uh, the brain is getting rid of its uh, um, toxins and abnormal proteins. Don't Those get cleared during the night. And sleep is not something you borrow. You, you really need to dedicate seven to eight hours of solid sleep. You can't um, uh, use it in two parts and nap and make make that part of the seven hours. It has to be taken in one chunk. It's important for health. We get rid of uh, abnormal proteins. The get the brain gets cleared and filtered out of uh, um, toxins and metabolites during the night. 
And if we're not dedicating time specific for sleep and we're starting to um, use the uh, bedtime to catch up on work and answer emails and uh, watch television and shows and that that can be at a pretty high expense rate on on how it's impacting our health. Dr. Alon Avidan, neurologist, uh, director of the UCLA Sleep Disorder Center. We had him on on the podcast. I've got questions. And yeah, but- the whole thing was was he was good. He'll take you through how to exactly get that good night's sleep. And then the rules for napping, which is only 20 minutes between one and three in the afternoon. That's it. Do but not nap you, any other time. Yeah, but he was talking about, you know, like uh, you know, watching TV and all that. How do you binge watch and sleep? <laughs> you got to catch up on your possible. episodes. It's just not possible. Only binge watch in the front room and then leave the bedroom for the sleeping. How how many hours do you sleep a night? I get like seven and a half to eight. I do pretty good. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I listen to him. Yeah, no, I, I do like five, <laughs> like five hours. And can you honestly say it's had an impact on it? <laughs> well, don't answer. You've been the same for years. <laughs> yeah, don't answer me. Fifty years ago this day, Title IX went into effect. The law protects people from discrimination based on sex and education programs or activities that receive federal aid. You might be most familiar with it when it comes to women's sports. Title IX credited with boosting women's sports at the college level as it allowed programs to get proper funding so they could survive and grow. With us is Nancy Lowe, co-director of the UNLV Sports Research and Innovation Initiative, served as a consultant for Title IX issues in Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, and Lee Maurer, head coach for USC's men's and women's swimming teams, first woman at USC to lead both programs together, also national championship swimmer at Stanford in the early 90s, and a 1992 Olympic bronze medalist. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Nancy, let's start with you since you are out-of-town visitor. Um, what are you thinking about today when we see this anniversary? Well, I, I think about amazing progress that's been made. I'm I'm just so happy to celebrate the 50th anniversary. This is kind of my lived experience. I'm what you might call a timeline baby. So I was afforded the opportunities to participate in sport in high school, college, as a coach, and now, you know, to teach about gender equity. Um, I think about the the hundreds of thousands, even millions of girls who now have not just had the opportunity to participate in sport, but also the opportunity to get a college education, and that largely due to this legislation. Will you tell us how it's impacted you? Um, yeah, I think just echoing um, what Nancy said, I came from the six of seven and didn't come from a very wealthy family. And so I'm not sure I would have been um, able to attend such a prestigious university where I was able to go to Stanford on a scholarship. And, um, you know, I met my husband there and I made the Olympics and um, definitely, you know, I was part of three national championship winning teams. And, um, and I think definitely it um, impacted who I was as an individual and now um, kind of championing that cause and feeling a responsibility to carry on and um, give back uh, because so many women um, you know, we're trailblazers and, and, and um, made it possible for me. And now I'm um, coaching and just I beyond excited to be coaching men and women. Um, that's a really rare opportunity as a, as a female. And, you know, I've coached some Olympians, um, one male and two women. And so I feel good about um, my opportunities and, and feel a responsibility to make sure that I give back um, to the sport and to um, kind of humanity in, in creating leaders that are um, responsible and uh, generous. And when you coach women now, is it kind of funny to realize that maybe as girls when they were coming up that they didn't realize that there was a whole different world 50 years ago when they couldn't look out onto a field and see other girls out there? 
Yeah, I think that's a really important piece is that um, while it's a law, it doesn't mean that equity exists. And, um, you know, I think we want to continue to understand how we can move the needle in the right direction um, while we are incredibly grateful um, for the opportunities that we have. But I think there is a lot of responsibility um, for everyone, men and women, um, to find equity and and improvement in our life. But, um, you know, hopefully do it from a place of gratitude. And Nancy, and of course, Title IX had an impact, has an impact beyond just women in sports, right? Absolutely. The The part that is interesting is that the law was passed to create opportunity for women to get education, and in particular, higher education. So, you know, we're talking about a situation where 10% of a law class would be women, which means 90% were men. 10% of a medical class, same thing, all the way through a lot of different areas of, of higher education. And then you flip it to 50 years later, and our graduations tend to be sometimes as much as 60% of the graduates, the undergraduates being women. That just absolutely would not have happened without Title IX. So, you know, the, the thing that's quite interesting is everyone thinks of sport when they think of Title IX, but the reality is the law was passed to create opportunities for education and sport just happened to be something that was one of those really pivotal paths for women to get that education through scholarship and also develop their, their leadership capacity. And, you know, we have phenomenal statistics on what happens when you become a, a athlete throughout your life and what that does to your capacity as a leader going forward in your life. A lot of talk today about expansions that this administration wants to see happen. And what areas do still need work? Well, there's there's no question that, you know, one of the biggest controversies going on right now is around trans athletes. And um, I believe that the language that was put forward by the president today is trying to protect trans athletes from discrimination. Um, this is quite interesting because we have well over 20 states that have passed trans bans, as they're called, or legislation banning trans women from participation in girls, women in sport. Um, so that's certainly going to be one of the most controversial aspects. Um, but in particular, as, as Leah said, just making sure that the equity that is afforded through this legislation is, in fact, what we see. We've yet to achieve gender equity, despite the fact that we're at 50 years of the law. And talking about the law, Lee, do you have any concerns that uh, somewhere down the road, and I'm thinking as we are speaking now of the, the pending Supreme Court uh, ruling on abortion rights, do you have any concerns that at some future point, Title IX could somehow be either diluted or even overturned? Um, I don't think it will be get, um, overturned. I think um, I, my biggest concern is, is that it's misconstrued. So we have made huge progress, but um, in my profession in particular, 85% of the college coaches are men. And um, the number of women that were coaching women before Title IX was, was much higher. Many, many women were coaching women. And now um, there are very few women coaching women and very few women coaching men. Um, so I think I'm just worried a little bit about the execution of Title IX. And, you know, I think a lot of um, misunderstandings about kind of um, how it's being, um, it, we definitely are, are making progress and there's tremendous size. And then there's um, unintended consequences where um, a women's program, there's uh, maybe more certainty that they're not going to get cut because of Title IX. And so a lot more men have um, entered that, that um, arena and, and kind of taken it over. And so I think just being thoughtful about 
um, is there a space or is there a consequence to that? And just being mindful of um, and how do we kind of um, be proactive and make sure that we are putting the best people in the best jobs. Lee Maurer, head coach for USC's men's and women's swimming teams, and Nancy Lowe, co-director of the UNLV Sports Research and Innovation Initiative. Thanks to you both. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.